It's time for the Basser Hour. The Basser Hour is an in-depth look at things affecting today's veteran. The Basser Hour is sponsored by www.hadit.com. If you need help with the VA, log on to hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Jay Basser. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Basser Hour. It's been a while. Today is the fifth day of November, so you know it's on a Monday. It's a special day. Uh, today we're going to continue a series of shows we've been hosting with uh, Dr. Bash and his sidekick Bill Krieger, and today we're probably going to discuss uh, the big one, TBI. And uh, you know that's a very, very serious injury these veterans suffer when they've been exposed to explosions or head trauma. So. I'll turn this over to Dr. Bash. How you doing, Dr. Bash? I'm good. I'm good. I was going to talk about good. the prototypical case that we have. A guy recently had a bunch of micro traumas. He was a controller under a six-inch gun in front of a, of a destroyer, on a huge class destroyer. And, um, yeah. you know, he has to have health care. He can't walk around. He's dizzy. gets lost in his house. His wife does all the cooking mm. and stuff for him. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a little bit of secret, like a secret TBI, because usually people try to look for a concussion where somebody loses consciousness or, you know, is bleeding on the brain with MRI scan or CT scan. This kind of thing can be kind of invisible even with MRI scan, but it causes a lot of problems with the person's memory and concentration focus. So uh, I have to to think about something about the ideas between 100% and SMCT because we have 100% you know that pays 100% but we also have the SMCT that's out there like an R2 level and there's a lot of little steps in between so that's confusing trying to figure out how to rate people in those intermediate steps and so maybe Bill can help us a little with that stuff oh sure let's uh, um Congress Congress gave us a, a generous benefit for uh, the patients with uh, traumatic brain injury. Um, it was based a lot on testimony by um, victims of TBI and their spouses who testified before Congress as to the profound disability that they suffer and their severe needs. And uh, I had the privilege of, of represent, uh, not representing, but I had the privilege of actually deciding such a case uh, for one of the individuals who actually uh, testified before Congress. And, no way, uh, Bill. No way, Bill. That guy, that guy testified? Um, yeah, well, I'm not sure we're speaking of the same patient, but um, yeah. the one I had in mind, um, I... Uh, I was able to grant the maximum benefit in that case. Um, there were certain uh, activities of daily living that the veteran could not perform independently because of TBI. Um, part of that was a rather significant impairment of his hands uh, in coordination, um, lack of endurance, and so he needed help with uh, some activities such as uh, cooking and and dressing. He also had uh, memory problems, and so um, he was reliant on GPS 
to get to a medical appointment um, or to uh, find the grocery store. Um, he wasn't capable of retaining that information. And uh, the uh, Board of Veterans' Appeals had actually uh, remanded that case for further development. And as as soon as the case was brought to my attention, I uh, contacted his attending VA neurologist who completed a... Uh, a VA form explaining the need for aid and attendance. Now, the veteran was 100%, and because you're 100% and need regular aid and attendance due to TBI, then special monthly compensation at the highest possible level, SMCT, T or Section 38 U.S.C. Section 1114T. That's where it's in the code. That's how it got the name. And that provides the highest special monthly compensation available. It's the same criteria that for other veterans might require SMCL. Uh, that's regular aid and attendance. But if it's due to TBI, it's SNCT, and it's payable at the highest compensation that VA has available. And so we're, we were hey, Bill, able to hey, Bill, make that Hey, Bill, can you happy. go over that again? Hey, Bill, can you go over that again? Okay. So SMCL equals SMCT if the person has TBI. Exactly like right. You got it. Exactly right. You want to define? It's, you want to define SMCL a little bit for the boys? Oh, sure. sure, sure. Now you can find the criteria at 38 CFR 3.350. Okay. And in there, um, it's spelled out, and the specific criteria are listed at 38 CFR 3.352. Now, those specific criterion um, are described as the inability to dress or undress, to keep themselves ordinarily clean and presentable, have the frequent need of adjustment of any prosthetic or orthopedic appliance that requires someone else to assist. Okay. Um, inability to feed themselves through loss of coordination of the upper extremities or, or extreme weakness. Uh, the inability to attend to wants of nature with the loss of uh, bowel and bladder control or incapacity, physical or mental, that um, is required to protect them from the hazards or dangers incident to the daily environment. So these don't have to be daily needs. Uh, they don't have to be severe needs. You don't have to satisfy all of them. Any of them predicates entitlement to regular aid and attendance. 
The difference is that Congress has given us the um, authority to grant this at the highest level, SMCT, if it's due to TBI. Now, uh, uh, Bill, you you mentioned uh, the five-inch uh, gun here, or cannon, uh, repeated, uh, you know, repetitious shooting was the cause of this veteran's uh, TBI, and you was able to prove the TBI uh, uh, through his diagnosis, uh, him uh, having uh, upper extremities, uh, un, you know, that he was having difficulty controlling? Uh, well, actually, the Navy did not recognize it. Um, they gave him a rather vague psychiatric diagnosis. In fact, they were at one point exploring whether or not this was a case of malingering um, because they didn't quite understand um, what the cause of his symptoms was. And so they were... They kind of gave him this idea of amnesia, right, Bill? Amnesia of unknown cause sort of thing, you know? Yes, so I, yes. I, mean, I, saw, I saw that cause. and I go, yeah, I go, this is about right. And so I thought he had TBI, and then Bill looked in the record and found some clinical notes, right, Bill? Yes, there were some clinical notes and some evaluations, and, and what piqued my curiosity was the fact that that onset shortly after exposure to that uh, concussion and blast uh, on, on a recurring basis. And, and because the symptoms had an onset somewhat close to that, that it, it piqued my curiosity about could this possibly be um, an undiagnosed TBI. Um, now today, in his uh, VA treatment records, he has a diagnosis of TBI. Right, so... It's a, compl- it's a complicated issue because, you know, a lot of people get treated with nurse practitioners and PAs in the field or on shifts and shifts. And unless they see somebody pass out for five minutes, they don't think about TBI. They don't, they don't have the training to understand that this micro, this micro trauma can lead to the same kind of cascade of events in the brain that gives you just as severe as mental problems as a mm-hmm. major single trauma. Well, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned this. Here's where I'm... I'm uh, kind of getting to here. Uh, you mentioned this five-inch cannon. I don't think it matter whether it's five-inch or, you know, uh, what size weapon or repeated loud noises in your ears is going to, you know, over time it's going to do something. However, uh, uh what I'm getting at is the in, uh, the reaction of their upper extremities. Uh, that tells you right there it could be uh, some sort of brain issue. Uh, true, and you was able to prove it down to a TBI, and the VA. Um, 
accepted that explanation you was able to give them. Huh? The brain runs, runs everything, you know. So we kind of had two patients here. Bill talked about one, I talked about another, but the concept is the same, you know. The, the brain has a little body, little body inside it, so it depends on where the where the traumas are that uh, you know what part of the body doesn't work. So it's, well, it's my, the point, and, my point being, uh, could uh, chemicals have the same effects on the brain? Yeah, I would think I would think that they could have. Yes. Yep. 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 Yeah, classic toxin. You know, one toxin we talk about is like radiation. It's kind of an obvious thing that people get radiation in the head and neck, and then that, that affects the brain. They can get something very similar to TBI because the brain only has the brain only has so many ways to react. You know, on and off kind of basically at the bottom level, and things that affect the blood vessels or things that affect nutrition or toxins that you get across the blood-brain barrier can have this very similar kind of. You know, anoxia, low oxygen, too much radiation, too much um, chemotherapy, all that stuff can, can leave you with a very similar picture. Yes, that's that's the point I was trying to make. This could be a new avenue for a lot of veterans uh, dealing with exposures. Um, hey, hey, Bill, what is the, what is the, um, what do you think the rating schedule of deal with that? Oh, there's there's a specific rating for Parkinsonism or Parkinson's disease, uh, and of course that is presumed to be associated with exposure to herbicides. True, so that might be yeah. something folks need to be aware of. Um, so, Bill, can these can some of these uh, toxic exposures get rated analogous to uh, brain trauma? Not generally. Um, the manual makes it very clear that for rating purposes, a traumatic brain injury means a physical disability resulting from an event of external force causing an injury to the brain. Now, the... Um, one one alternative diagnosis could be anoxia. If the individual suffers a, a loss of respiration and the brain suffers from the lack of oxygen, that anoxia can produce symptoms similar to TBI. In that circumstance, if it's service-related, then it can be evaluated similar to a TBI, um, depending on the global presentation of symptoms. If, if we're evaluating... Yeah? Oh, what you're saying is that normally you have to have some kind of external blow, but there is sort of a footnote that allows anoxia to be rated into the, uh, into the TBI category, basically. That's correct, yes. If... if if um, it's to be a TBI, it has to be from external force. But if it is from anoxia, um, you need to choose whichever 
diagnostic code and diagnosis would um, provide the greatest compensation to the veteran. Um, you could rate it uh, similar to um, TBI or a, perhaps a stroke, a brain hemorrhage, um, a mental illness, um, or if it results in uh, some malfunction in a specific nerve distribution, you can rate the nerve affected. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility in the rating schedule to allow for other brain conditions uh, and and to evaluate them. Okay, but anoxia would be one uh, a term you'd certainly want to incorporate in on a claim uh, for uh, not for TBI, but uh, uh, for uh, Parkinson's-like symptoms or what have you. Yes, and and you know, in in the gen- more general term of brain injury, as opposed to traumatic brain injury, that would be a reasonable presentation. It could be strangulation, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, you know, um, diving accident. Uh, so there's chemical exposure. Well, another place another place might show up is somebody who has a somebody has a seizure, for example. You know, so mm-hmm. if, uh, if they seize and they might stop breathing, they might get an oxygen. If they had a bad enough chemical, you know, back to your point about chemicals. If you had a really toxic chemical, you might get the brain into a seizure state, and it could result in an oxygen that way. Yeah, yeah, and and you'd you'd want that case reviewed by someone um, with a substantial um, degree of experience and training. In, in fact, evaluating TBI, um, inexperienced raters are not generally to be assigned the case. Um, the generally the manual requires that. Um, a raider must obtain a second signature on a TBI case until after they've achieved a certain degree of experience and, and satisfactory quality of, of their work on TBI cases, and then they can rate them independently. Well, I know some of your your TBI uh, cases uh, show up on a uh, shows lesions. Uh, on the brain, but and uh, uh, what you're referring to don't necessarily do that. So um, the other symptoms they have to go to is evidently uh, your uh, P- Parkinson's type event, you know, uh, symptoms or. Uh, possibly others. You mentioned seizures, which would be, a, I would imagine, be a good example. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Sure. There's a, I think, I think some of the things that that concern me from my experience is, you know, the patient doesn't know. They're they're not aware, and and uh, sometimes it it kind of takes someone observing them to bring the uh, the fact that they have symptoms to the patient's attention in, in some cases. You know, so it's, 
Okay. Particularly if, if the condition results in um, complex partial seizures or what's also been called pseudo seizures. Um, there, you know, when we think of seizures, we, we picture a grand mall type of event where the person is collapsed and shaking on the ground. Um, yeah, that sort of severe sort of uh, of an event. But there are other types of seizures, and and these um, complex partial seizures can result in some pretty strange and hard to detect sort of symptoms and presentations. Like, oh, I had a, I had a patient who um, took his family to the beach, and he and his wife and child were there, and he stood up and pulled off his swimming trunks, and his wife was fighting him to pull him back up, and and um, he was fighting her, and then after the event, he had absolutely no recollection of that at all, uh, and that's just one example. There was a time when he uh, took a carton of milk out of the refrigerator and poured it in the closet. Um, uh, another incident where the same patient, um, they were at an outdoor restaurant, and he got up from the table and walked straight into a highway in traffic and caused Ooh. cars to you know, screech their brakes and everything. And I, I remember very distinctly at, at the at a hearing when he was trying to um, achieve service connection and get an evaluation. His wife testified to all this, and he flatly denied that it happened. <laughs> he had no recollection of any of these events whatsoever. Um, so, so he did it you know, more or less on an involuntary impulse. He just had an impulse to do something, and mm-hmm. he had, he wasn't aware of it. It was like an automatic response mm-hmm. to something. Exactly right. Exactly right. It was a very, very, very odd case, and uh, that would be a certainly, point. Yes, it certainly did um, make an impression on me. <laughs> but we were able, to, we were able to get him well cared for and, and uh, properly evaluated. I was, I was very glad when that happened. Well, that would have been a tough case to win. <laughs> Yeah. We yeah, back then I was uh, representing that individual, and we had a, a sympathetic uh, hearing officer to to hear the case. I think that had an impact on the case too. <laughs> uh, well, yes, and you know it helps to have someone understanding like that. Uh, have you know have the ability to see the the possibility that. That's a, this can really happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes um, good documentation, good witnesses, um, and a good medical explanation to uh, help the adjudicator understand the medicine. Because uh, it's not not something you're going to um, typically find in your records. You know? <laughs> Uh, that's true. Uh, but it might be um, rather important also to to point out that some conditions arise secondary to TBI, and 
um, certain conditions and certain circumstances are presumed to be associated with TBI. You don't have to prove it, like Parkinson's yes. or seizures or dementia, depression, sometimes uh, hormone deficiencies. So these sort of things are um, very important to uh, be aware of. You don't have to prove them. Now, if you don't quite satisfy all the rules for presumptive service connection for a condition, um, you can be service on a secondary basis by proving the case with medical evidence. So if, um, if some condition uh, is determined by a, a competent medical source that it is secondary to TBI, then VA can grant secondary service connection and evaluate it. Well, wouldn't that usually take a sympathetic uh, adjudicator? I mean, a uh, like a DRO or someone that can understand, have a better understanding that these things yeah, are possible. Yes, and I think that's why um, VA has limited uh, those who are permitted to make an independent decision on TBI cases. Um, in that way, the, the veteran with TBI has the case reviewed by someone more experienced and having already demonstrated the ability to sort out these kinds of issues. Evaluation can get complicated, too. Um, you understand the the rating schedule um, provides for the evaluation of TBI under Diagnostic Code 8045. Of course, that changed in 2008. It became somewhat more complicated because it might be 100. If not 100, then it could be 70, 40, or 10. Depending on the severity of different sets of disability. Um, so you might have a cognitive impairment or like like um, memory concentration problems. Or you might have subjective symptoms like headaches or ringing ears. Um, might be some behavioral issues. Um, and the rating schedule provides that the veteran gets an evaluation under whichever one of these facets is the most disabling. So if you have subjective symptoms that would warrant a 30%, but you have, let's say, cognitive impairment that would warrant a 70, you would get the 70 instead of the 30. What complicates that question, though, is if you don't use, let's say, for example, subjective symptoms like headaches and tinnitus, if you don't use them in the evaluation of TBI, then you can contact the veteran separately. So if the veteran's headaches, for example, are in a pattern analogous to migraines, 
and warrant uh, perhaps a 30% evaluation, you may assign the um, initial TBI evaluation under 8035 and then assign a separate 30% for the headache because you didn't use it in the evaluation of the cognitive um, impairment. Sounds a little complex, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. you you get to talking about the VA, it all becomes very complex unless you're dealing with it every day, you know, and you're up to, yeah. up yeah. to up to date on on everything and the changes they make and what have you. But the normal veteran uh, certainly. Uh, uh, is in a world of hurt. They need some expertise, um, proper expertise going in facing the VA. Uh, because like you say, uh, sometimes it takes other people to, uh, from, from observing it, to say, hey, this guy here, he, he's... Uh, He's making claims on the wrong thing. This looks like something else to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and I can understand that happening. Yeah, and, and you know, that that's not exclusive to TBI, although the topic might is TBI, but Dr. Batch and I worked together on many cases for several years um, with multiple sclerosis. And patients would have alternative diagnoses for symptoms that manifested during service or shortly thereafter. And only someone with the appropriate knowledge would, and, and motivation, obviously, would look at this in retrospect and say, hey, wait a minute, this, this started back here in the service records. I see it, you know? Um, and so it, it's... Um, it's important to have good medical evidence, and it's important to have a, a motivated and sincere representative helping you. Um, and particularly folks with um, TBI and emotional disorders that um, aren't always able to act in their own best interests. Um, the impairment might impede their ability to express their claim, and, and that, that's always been troubling. Well, yeah. Sometimes it's it's hard to recognize these issues. Jump in, Doctor. So, Doctor Bash, what kind of medical test is required to uh, diagnose a TBI? Oh, the manual. The specific testing is not defined. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll leave it to Doctor Bash to to describe what. Uh, manifestations he looks for to make the diagnosis. The manual requires that for adjudication purposes, a diagnosis must be made by a physiatrist, psychiatrist, a neurosurgeon, or neurologist. And um, a general clinician can evaluate TBI but only if they have completed VA's training module on TBI and only if the diagnosis is already a record made by one of those specialists. 
And so the, the VA has imposed some, a little more stringent standards on who can conduct the exams and opine and things like that, which is probably a good thing. I don't know about the bash of the neuroradiologist. Uh, it's probably some type of injury they can use to actually, you know, show the brain, in, in, you know, because there's always, you've got to have some kind of evidence left over, you know, be the white matter or something showing a brain injury. Because any time you have an injury like that, you know, basically it's like a concussion, you know, your, your brain will slap one side of your head and it, and it has to leave a scar somewhere. Yeah, it's best. Yeah, we're neuroradiologists that orphan children. There's only a couple thousand of us, you know, versus twenty thousand neurologists. So when they wrote that, when they wrote that, they should have included us because there's some obvious things we can see on imaging that help help with that. But it's a complicated thing, you know, neurologists, and psychiatrists, and physiatrists, and neurosurgeons. You know, sometimes it takes the whole group to sort out what exactly is going on. Well, at any rate, it takes a lot of research to nail it all down because if you have a TBI injury and and uh, there's no, it's not showing any lesions and what have you, that that seems like a real a real tough case to me. That, that uh, how on earth are you gonna prove that up? But Bill, give us some ways that that can. Uh, be proven up, and uh, sometimes you know, it's a diagnosis of exclusion too. Where you rule out, like Bill says, MS. You rule out brain tumor. And you rule out toxic exposures. Then you hear this history of trauma. The symptoms fit, so you make a diagnosis that way. Well, that's true. Uh, but there should be a way to measure it. I don't know. Could would uh, take uh, a test of some sort? Maybe I don't know. Now the well, the brain back yeah, in the, brain, brain's the most complicated thing we know. You know, we, we can't we don't understand exactly. So we're kind of looking from the outside in. We have some neuropsych testing. We have rapid movement testing. Eye movement, brain, brain scan. A lot, a lot of stuff we can do, but doesn't, there's nothing that tells us exactly in every case it's going to be black and white TBI. So it's, you know, a lot of medicine is in a gray zone. And they get the diagnosis wrong, like this patient we're talking about. You know, they gave him a diagnosis of amnesia, which was one symptom of his bigger, more global TBI problem. Later on down the road, we, you know, the medical record worked it out, gave him a more correct diagnosis. Hey, Dr. Pax, what is the TBI? situation have to do, say if you have a head injury. I know back in the day, back in the nineties they didn't call it a TBI, they called it uh, basically a residual concussion. One of does a rent schedule back then. But today you see a lot of veterans have had neck injury, head injury and TBIs and they have nerve damage in their ears and tinnitus. What's the link between those two? Well historically you know medicine's gone by TBIs for a long time since that the Congress and the lay population is trying to catch up, you know, with, with, and we have all new imaging now, so it becomes kind of a, you know, a term that people recognize. And, you know, the brain has its own set of functions, and it has all these nerves that run out and run different parts of the body. So, you know, one place that happens a lot is in the temporal bone of the ear. There's 
seventh and eighth nerves that go through that ear, and oftentimes people have a, a fracture through the temple bone, and it'll sever or traumatize those those nerves to the seventh and eighth uh, ear function. That's where you get the dizziness, dizziness, and loss of function. So that's a common common thing. You know, the brain, the skull, and the brain kind of have a dance going on, and if the, if the skull gets hurt in a certain way, the brain is going to respond, and if the skull fractures in a certain way, there's a certain common places that fractures kind of concrete. It's not poured correctly, and it's going to crack in a certain place. So the brain has some sort of common things that happen to it when it gets traumatized. And so when we image, we look for those common fractures, and then we start to look for the associated nerve image or the, or the brain trauma. One thing that's important to remember is that the brain swells over time, so oftentimes patients will be sort of lucid for a while, but the brain has like max edema at 11 days. So patients will go along and, you know, go home and sleep it off, and then they might not wake up because the brain goes into that edema phase. So the brain is really actually pretty dynamic, and so you have to look at it with that in mind and also diagnose it with those, you know, separate functions. Well, does the, the brain have a tendency to shrink in size if it becomes injured or uh, maybe not uh, enough for lesion but m- perhaps a bruise the brain gets bruised uh, I would imagine uh, that someone that's uh, uh, close to a five inch uh, cannon there going off all the time uh, that concussion hitting your head could bruise the brain. I mean, is there any way to tell if the brain was bruised or well, that's exactly or struck yeah. some? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, like if you keep stepping on a rock on your foot, you're going to get a bruise on your foot, and it's going to swell up. You know, it's micro trauma. So the brain, the brain's the same way. It's going to swell. The problem with the brain is that it, it's inside a little box, so it's almost like an eggshell with an egg inside. So there's not much room when you're young, for the brain to swell. So in young people, when they get those micro traumas like that, the brain can swell, and then you don't get very good perfusion, like Bill was talking about, anoxia, and you can actually have brain death just based on swelling. When you're older, as you go through life, the brain starts to shrink slowly. And so I even have seen cases where older patients, you know, 89-year-olds have huge tumors in the brain that suck up that extra space that's kind of residual there now when they're older. And they don't even have any symptoms because there's so much room inside the, the bone, the bony vault. So it depends on how old you are when you have it, how much trauma you have, what type of trauma, and um, a lot of factors involved. Let me question, Dr. Bash. Have you ever diagnosed a case of Huntington's disease? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, no, I've read teaching files, but I haven't done that. Hmm, okay. That's a bad brain to these people. You did bring up an interesting point there um, peripherally about identifying what's being claimed. Um, the, the, the manual, again, here makes it very clear that these claims must be read sympathetically. Right? So it, it specifically provides that if, if somebody puts in a claim for head injury or concussion, um, they must accept that as a claim for residuals of a TBI. 
And conversely, if a veteran claims things like combat injuries, assault, automobile accident, fall, or any other injuries or events that, that raise the issue of TBI, if there was an injury to the head, so if a veteran specifies that he was in some kind of an accident or an assault or combat injury that um, was traumatic to the head, then whether the veteran does or doesn't specify a claim for TBI is not relevant. The VA is to construe that as a TBI claim. And, and then again, conversely, if, if they file a the uh, claim for the TBI, the duty on VA is to identify any complications like what are their um, IED or something, where there are burns, muscle injuries, orthopedic injuries, amputations, um, in addition to the brain injury. So it works both ways in favor of the veteran. Um, and, uh, we hope, we can only hope that. Uh, it will be sympathetically read and understood. Hey, hey Bill, how does Bill have, I see, yeah. I see a lot of patients come with, same question. Uh, with symptoms. You know, they'll come with, like, headache. They'll come with, like, tinnitus. They'll come with dizziness and memory loss. So there's not much of a, of a, you know, it's hard for the reader to maybe put those together as TBI, but is there any kind of thing in the manual that tries to help them do that or provide you know, integration? Uh, no, only the section I was just referring to. You, you find it at, I'm going to read off the numbers, and make a note, or you know, you can search it on the website. Um, M21-1, 3, Roman numeral 4, number 4, N2, and, and that makes clear that if there was an injury to the head, then accept it as a TBI claim. Um, and if they're claiming a TBI, be sure to explore the burns and injuries and, and amputations and all the other things um, for all disabling chronic residuals of the event, not just the head trauma. So the rules are on our side. <laughs> hey, Bill, how does that work well, on like, historical claims? Like, let's say, for example, before the TBI criteria came out, you know, the veteran had a head injury and he was treated for residual concussion. Prior to 2008, uh, Diagnostic Code 8045 had no evaluation other than 10%. Period. Right. Okay. Um, if the record indicated that there were complications like paralysis or skull loss or vision or hearing, they were separately evaluated. Um, I should say could be separately evaluated. But the TBI itself, uh, or brain disease due to trauma, as it used to be called, um, is just 10%. That's all there was. Mm-hmm. Now, 
since the rule changed in 2008, anyone who claimed um, an increase in evaluation from 2008 to 2009, the effective date would go back to 2008. I think that was uh, October 23rd, if I remember. And as long as you got your claim in within a year of the rule change, the effective date is the date of the rule change, October 2008. If you miss that one year, but if your symptoms in 2008 warranted a higher evaluation, then your current evaluation would have a one-year retroactive effective date from the date of claim. Well, that sounded a little complicated, didn't it? <laughs> but that's, that's what's called liberalizing rule 3.114 in the regulations. And basically, if when the rule changed, you were entitled to the higher evaluation, get your claim in the first year, it goes back to the rule change. Miss the deadline, it goes back one year. Well, that's the best every day, folks. <laughs> Go ahead, Dr. Bass. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So let's um, go back to the symptoms. So, you know, a lot of patients have symptoms. So all the patients out there, if you have some cluster of symptoms you think might be a TBI, you know, don't, don't, don't go see your family practitioner or your local PA. You want to go find a neurologist or somebody who knows about the brain because if you go to the VA with a TBI diagnosis, you have a lot better chance of getting a correct rating if you go there with a, set of, a cluster of symptoms that, that the VA can't, you know, sink your teeth into. So uh, a veteran, uh, if he has those, you know, symptoms, he thinks might be a TBI or something like that, <clears throat> then he should go see a neurologist or uh, possibly even a psychiatrist. Wouldn't that work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That could lead to the neurocognitive testing. Um and and your attending physician can make the referral. Yeah. Yes. A lot of these patients, a lot of these patients have mental deficits, you know, so they don't, might not be able to navigate that. But they have to try and get them to yeah. the specialist. It's just a matter of getting the proper documents to back up uh, I would imagine you're gonna have, a veteran would have to seek out the aid of a psychiatrist or a neurologist or uh someone like that either within the v a or or out out of the v a in order to uh, get the necessary documents to help prove up their case. Yes, yes. And I, I would say that if, if the veteran is um, is intending to make the claim 
you can certainly file an intent to file, ITF. And you can file a document with VA. They send you a form. And they say, I intend to file a claim for TBI. That anchors your effective date, and then you can develop your evidence and submit it. And um, that can help move it along. And at the same time, preserve the earliest possible effective date. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Bashke, I can't emphasize enough about the, about the diagnosis. You know, if you take your car as a Volkswagen versus a Chevrolet, they're going to treat it differently. The VA is going to rate it differently. So our first patient had that diagnosis of amnesia, and that was the wrong diagnosis. Yeah. Now again, in the category of TBI. So the patients have to really kind of make sure that their doctor gives them a concrete diagnosis because sometimes when the doctor's confused, they won't give you a diagnosis, and then you don't make any progress in treatment or for the purposes of rating. Yeah, and to the spouse or the significant other out there, um, if you're observing symptoms and they don't seem to add up or make sense, um, you might have to hold that person's hand and guide them to get the right help. I think that's bottom line, Bill. I mean, uh, you're saying too many things that just don't make sense, and uh, I don't see any other choice but to uh, get to a specialist, uh, a medical specialist of some sort. Yep. Yep. Because as a rule, most things... I know they they say a lot of times, well, it's undiagnosable, but I, I for one, just don't buy that story. It, it just tells me that they haven't properly diagnosed it, and, and that's just a cop-out. Yeah, the way I deal with that is if I can't diagnose it after I'm not smart enough, I haven't read enough, or I haven't got them to the right person yet, you know? Yeah. That's why I, I see things in records, and I say, hey, Doc, hey, Dr. Bash. Am I going to hear what? I, well, we got time for just this one example. Um, I was looking through a record, and the veteran was trying to prove that his multiple sclerosis started in service. He was totally convinced that it was because the symptoms that he had episodically after service reminded him of the symptoms he had in service. And so when he was finally diagnosed with MS, which was a long time after service, he was totally convinced that it started in service. Well, VA had examined him two, three times, and all the doctors were lining up and saying, no, there were no symptoms of MS present in service. So we, I took a look through his record, and I did some studying and imaging, and it showed you know, certain abnormalities in certain locations of the brain. So I just looked it up you know, on the line, and I realized, oh, that portion of the brain affects hearing. So I... I look through his treatment records, and I see at one point in time the veteran complained that his hearing seemed odd. It sounds like my head is in a bucket. Okay? 
Well, what explains that? Uh, who knows? They didn't know. But then I noticed that his hearing tests, he had sequential hearing tests in service, and they were all over the map. Um, so we we suggested that um, these lesions on the brain are consistent with those in MS cases, they've been used to diagnose MS in this case. So the veteran has MS with lesions in this area. This area affects hearing, and here are abnormalities of hearing in service records consistent with MS. Um, Board of Veterans Appeals in that case decided to send it to a university and the department head, the head of neurology in that university, and came back and said, no, it's related to his sinus trouble. <laughs> well, I got a hold of Dr. Bash, and, and what I stressed to Dr. Bash was, look, if it's, if it's infection, then we would predict a cross-board loss. Low, medium, high frequencies across the board are all going to go down during the infection. And then when it clears up, those frequencies will all recover. Um, in this case, it wasn't like that. In fact, his hearing was worse after infection went away. And it wasn't across the board. It was at specific frequencies. If, if you could picture two hands playing a piano, pushing on the keys, okay, and then put that on your hearing test and, and see the frequencies going up and down at different frequencies, different ears, and different times. Now, what can explain that other than... Relapsing, remitting, MS, that's affecting different functions at different times in that recognizable pattern. So Dr. Bash, <laughs> he agreed with me, little old Bill. <laughs> he explained it to the BVA, and BVA accepted Dr. Bash's opinion over the department head of neurology of a major university. <laughs> now that's unusual, but Doctor Batch is very thorough, and he's uh, uh, his IMOs, his statements. So, with with that explanation, uh, I don't see how they could do anything but agree with it. <laughs> hey, Bill, in, in that case, do we have do we have lesions in the brainstem? We have some lesions in the brainstem, I think, too, didn't we? Some lesions in the midbrain. Oh my! I have to go back a long MRI. time. Yeah, yeah. That would be the, that would be a real kicker. That'd be a real kicker because the place in the brain that shows up that affects hearing would be right in the midbrain. So if we had, a, we probably did have midbrain lesions, and I went through the whole explanation. So that's what you know really rolled them over, probably. You know, the, the frequency losses, and then a picture on the brain that shows that, that accounts for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes some little things can really turn it over. 
it just takes a lot of research. Yeah, yeah. You gotta, you gotta study the record. You gotta look for the little things. You gotta take your time to compare that to all the available laws, and you gotta pay attention to what the patient's telling you, because all of that makes the whole picture. And um, can't be in a hurry and do that. <laughs> no, you can't. And there's a lot of things in a veteran's medical records. Uh, a, a lot of times are just overlooked or not uh, accessible to the veteran because uh, when they used to send out these uh, claims folders or, uh, you know, uh, the hell, they would only copy one side of their medical records. Those oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. 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 I didn't you, you get bring to uh, mind both a sides case, of uh, mine till here just last year. <laughs> wow. Wow. You bring to mind case World War II vet, and he has been denied for years and years and years. And I went looking through his service records, and I found a stack of dental records with a rusty old staple in it that had never been pulled. Well, I'm not it. surprised. Yeah. I pulled it, and I found exactly what we needed to win that case. Yeah. So is that the veteran's fault? You know, I mean, a lot of times they say, well, uh, we need this information, that information, when uh, the VA is sitting on that information and the veteran's not privy to that, that that's a bunch of hooey. Yeah, that's that, that's that's very awkward. That's that's the veteran doesn't know what to look for. And you're at, you're right. Yeah, it's it's really hard, really hard. Just got to take your time and do it right. I've I've known in my 40-plus years, I've known some good reps that, that uh, study things, study them, look through the record carefully. and uh, Be sure the complete records are here. Mm-hmm. That, that's mm-hmm. the hard one. Of course, one of my favorite <laughs> alternatives, particularly with the um, PTSD claims, um, you you get these decisions in from the regional office, and they get to BVA, and they say there's no proof of your stressor. And I would do an electronic search of Board of Veterans' Appeals decisions and see that there were five or seven other cases of PTSD that were granted by BVA based on that same stressor. We're out of time. Dr. Bash, you need to contact your information out. Uh, Dr. Bash, Google Dr. Craig Bash is the best way. Craig Bash, Google, YouTube, and then um, my uh, skips my schedule is nine two five three eight one seven five six one nine two five three eight one seven five six one. Schedule him anytime. Okay. okay. We need to get back together next week to get the thing. We've got a whole lot of stuff to go over, so. Maybe we can come back on next Monday, Tuesday, and do it again if you have that time. 
Yeah, let us know. All righty. Well, I do thank you for coming on. We do appreciate it. You guys have been a wealth of information. People, you're getting rave reviews right now out of the masses, so we'll keep that up. Great. All righty. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. Girl, yep. thanks for being okay. a well, today. Thanks, Rose. Well, that's my pleasure. Okay. Thanks. You guys have a good evening, and this is B.J. Basher. We'll be signing off for now. You have been listening to the Basher Hour. The Basher Hour is brought to you by Hadit.com. Stay tuned next week for another edition of the Basher Hour and the Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio Show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>